Welcome to today's episode of the Plain Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Wes. I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Plain Truth Podcast. And again, it's great to have you have you with us and hope you enjoy this episode. Again, another little different episode, uh, episode that I'm going to probably title uh, Going Solo. And the reason I'm going to call it that is um, you're still somewhat having difficulty uh, finding uh, guests from time to time. But uh, I wanted to actually, in this week's episode, continue telling my story. And um, and again, want to really thank Leah for joining us last week. She was just uh, fantastic, and I hope she uh, kind of brought some perspective from uh, an aviator's wife uh, point of view and um, giving a little information on what how she felt being a missionary pilot's wife for many many years but today I kind of want to just continue our story and where we left off was um, predominantly spending time in in Africa and then we made a quick jump at the end to commercial aviation but we left out a, a pretty good chunk of time and and during our, and so I want to kind of just pick up with our time in Africa. From a pilot perspective, it was an, an amazing opportunity, amazing technical challenges of being a pilot and mechanic in a third world country and flying in airspace that was by and large not controlled by anyone crossing. Uh, international boundaries, country to country, without air traffic control uh, monitoring, and as as Leah mentioned uh, several times, you know, one of her roles for a while was monitoring the HF radio, and even even at our uh, home base in Nairobi, Kenya, we had a group of of folks that whole job was to monitor the HF radio and listen to all the pilot position reports that would come in every 30 minutes with a, a latitude and a longitude, uh, an altitude, airspeed, basic uh, aircraft situational awareness type things. But then we also would call in on final approach or entering the, the traffic pattern of the airport we were going to land at now airport. I use, I use that term very loosely because in many places it would just be a, a dirt or grass strip or a rocky strip, um, somewhere in the upcountry in the jungle or in the, in the bush. But we would make position reports to aim base, you know, uh, joining final or entering the pattern. And then once we were touched down, we would call again and say, you know, we're on the ground and, and again, what time it, it was. And so, you know, this constant monitoring, self-monitoring, if you will, with with base was something that was critical to our safety, because you know these were the people that had uh, specific instructions to carry out in case of a downed aircraft to launch to launch uh, search and rescue. And matter of fact, from time to time, we would even do simulated. Uh, emergencies and and um, you know, run drills of an aircraft not checking in when they were supposed to and just to test the search and rescue response of our you know in-house in-house monitoring you know flying in Africa as I mentioned was was very challenging the the terrain was incredibly high around Nairobi of course Nairobi is like Denver and so it's 5,500 feet and tall mountains to the west, commonly mountain chain called the Ngong Hills, which bordered the eastern escarpment of the Rift Valley. To the north had the Abadair Mountains, which formed a valley on the west side. And to the east side of that valley was Mount Kenya, which reached up 17,000, 18,000 feet. To the south, down towards Tanzania, of course, there was Mount Kilimanjaro and other very tall 
volcano and mountain ranges. So the the terrain was incredibly high. Of course, this is before that we ever had uh, 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 terrain awareness, TAWS or, or anything like that. And for the most part, we were flying normally aspirated, at least me, I was flying normally aspirated Cessna 206s and 210s, which that altitude obviously created significant challenges with performance. It was not uncommon to take off even from, from Nairobi in a fully loaded 206. Now we had, we had cargo pods on the bellies of those airplanes. We also had uh, flint tip tanks, which allowed us to carry an additional 30 gallons of fuel. But some of our airplanes had Horton stall kits or sportsman stall kits. One even had a Robertson stall kit, which would allow for a short takeoff and landing. And and even with those extra lift generating devices, it was not uncommon to take off out of Nairobi fully loaded uh, 3,800 pounds in a 206, the flint tip tanks, because they added additional length to the wingspan. It did increase the gross weight by 200 pounds. And so we could take off at 3,800 pounds and yet the performance, you know, climbing out sometimes three, 400 feet a minute maybe 500 feet a minute on a on a warm day at that density altitude was not uncommon and so you really had to plan ahead you really had to think about all right how is this airplane going to respond um, in today's flying conditions so that was something we were always having to look out after of course flying up into the north of kenya or even to the east where it's very uh, semi-arid very hot desert uh, again, density, altitude, and performance, uh, very critical. And just, you know, not getting the manifold pressure that you would like to see at sea level, but perhaps only maybe getting, you know, 18 or 19, maybe 20 inches of manifold pressure and just not having the performance that you want. And so we used, uh, frequently used a little slide rule computer called a top cop, top comp, excuse me, a top comp that would help us calculate our takeoff and landing distance. So on, on unapproved airstrips, it was critical to have some means to which to, to accurately calculate the performance of the airplane and to build in safety margins, to build in uh, abort points, you know, for starting the takeoff roll and the top comp says, hey, you should be at 50% of your takeoff speed by a certain point, then we would establish an abort point. And so that means something's wrong. The airplane's not generating the power. We're not creating the lift that we need. And we're going to abort the takeoff and have enough runway remaining to make a, a, uh, a safe stop uh, without running off the end of the runway. And so we had all these parameters. Uh, some of our airstrips had were weight limited for the takeoff just for that very reason. Uh, wasn't possible for the airplane to take off at gross weight on some airstrips. Uh, there was an airstrip in northern Kenya called Kurungu, which was uh, in again in the desert, and we had to significantly lower the maximum takeoff weight out of that runway out of that dirt strip just because of the high density altitudes, because of the high heat, it was not uncommon to be well over 100 degrees out there. But there was a, another airstrip about five or 10 minutes away called Desert Rose, and we would oftentimes shuttle uh, people, maybe one or two people at a time over to the longer runway and uh, in order to get everybody, everybody back to base. So, you know, there was always, um, calculations and, and thought processes going into operating in and out of very remote and very marginal airstrips. And, um, you know, it was very challenging from an aviator's point of view uh, perspective. It was what we, what we trained to do. I, I remember, um, you know, again at Moody and even at, at JARS when we were doing our pre-field orientation and training, uh, we had a, a a time of what was called Mountain Week, to where we practiced takeoff and landings on 
like 900 foot runways, grass strips, and you know learned how to calculate aircraft performance and control the aircraft and to fly the airplane at these slow speeds with the utilizing the the stole kits and um and that was really really enjoyable it was somewhat scary at times but it was it was very very uh, technically enjoyable to to do and to learn those skills and so back in kenya we predominantly well we only flew those airplanes day vfr again the air traffic control system was just insufficient to operate ifr the the terrain the the mountains the the winds just uh really didn't uh weren't conducive to operating single engine piston airplanes ifr and actually it wasn't even allowed in in country so so day vfr is all all we did and with those airplanes and you know at that time weather reporting was was uh was just not possible uh, the best best we could do is maybe get a satellite image off of the internet uh, before we left base and or maybe we could get on the radio the hf radio and call the station that we were going to fly to to get um you know a, a report from the missionaries there kind of tell us what the weather was was looking like and of course over time with experience and learning when the rainy seasons are and the dry seasons are you know you begin to to learn seasonally what the the typical weather is for the time of year and so it was it wasn't uncommon to fly you know hundreds of miles at times at low level and just uh, working your way around rain showers and then of course um setting setting margins for visibility knowing that tr the terrain and having your your our charts our vfr our WAC charts world aeronautical charts um, handy and then to track using pilotage and dead reckoning dead reckoning to know exactly where we were in order to avoid avoid terrain so it was a very challenging uh, aviation experience for me and um, I kind of have told people that my, my time in Africa was kind of the best and the worst uh, <laughs> time of my life because it was amazing flying at times, but it was also very stressful flying for me. Um, it, was, it, was, it was tough at times. Um, there, honestly, there were times where I, I felt I was very much at the maximum of my capabilities and, and even... Um, fearful at times and and as I have gotten older as I look back and go you know maybe some of that was um, faith-based maybe some of that was just not trusting in the Lord and not relying on his strength as much as I should have instead of mine and not not uh, not giving myself fully into into prayer as much as I probably should have to have that faith to step out and um, not not in an unwise way or not by by bucking you know SOP or or policies that we had but you know maybe there was a little bit of, of spiritual maturity that needed to to happen back in those days but from an aviation standpoint um, I learned a lot I really learned a lot as as a pilot there. And towards the end of our time, when our contract with uh, AIM was coming to an end, um, we had a decision to make about whether to to extend and, and return after our scheduled home assignment or uh, or wondering if God had something else for us. And for the last year we were in Kenya, um, a group from Samaritan's Purse came out with a turbine-powered DC-3, and I got to know those folks very well, um, became very good friends. And um, one of those individuals happened to be a board member of Missionary Flights International here in uh, South Florida. They were in West Palm Beach at the time. 
and he and I went to lunch one day and I was just kind of telling him, you know, that we're just not sure what we were going to, going to do, um, whether we were going to come back or, or we were just really praying about what God may have for us in the future. And he said, well, you know, something to think about is I'm on the board of missionary flights. And at that point, they were really short of pilots. Um, they had um, a, a group leave and were kind of in need. And so Lee and I uh, began praying and really seeking the Lord on what we should do and ended up sending a, a letter to missionary flights and actually um, e traded some emails back and forth and felt like that's where God was leading us. And so when we came home on home assignment, we traveled down to West Palm and interviewed with the board and met with the president of Missionary Flights is uh, Dick Snook, who's been uh, on our podcast. And uh, after those conversations and interviewing with the board, they extended a, an invitation to join Missionary Flights. And Lee and I made that decision. And that was the beginning of 2004. And so we packed up and moved down to West Palm and joined Missionary Flights and served there for um, a little over 13 years, about 13 and a half years, and progressed um, flying the DC-3, started off with the piston-powered DC-3s, and then uh, over time the organization transitioned from having the piston-powered airplanes to uh, an all-turbine-powered DC-3 fleet served as a first officer and then after oh, about six or seven years uh, upgraded to captain on the turbine powered dc3 and from a pilot perspective went from flying daytime vfr single engine airplanes in you know in the jungles of africa to now flying um, ifr daytime and nighttime, multi-engine turbine uh, over the Caribbean, international flying uh, into, into uh, you know, foreign countries, predominantly Haiti, Dominican Republic, around the Bahamas. Occasionally we did uh, hurricane relief or disaster relief operations into Mexico or Central America, uh, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, things like that. And then even, even into other states with it, within the U.S., um, predominantly in the Gulf Coast um, for a few of the hurricanes that really struck like Texas and New Orleans and Louisiana and Mississippi things like that and and I looked back and you know even though the the mission was the same the mission was using the airplane as a tool to share the the good news of Jesus Christ and to serve those who serve and to you know, we provided passenger and cargo service. Um, you know, even though the mission was the same, the location was was different. On a, on a side note, I remember the first time I went to Haiti, and you know, besides it being an island an island nation, I was I was amazed of the similarities, of course, between Haiti and Africa, and the many countries we were in in Africa, and. Uh, the similarities were, were astounding to me. And it was interesting that I remember the very, some of the very first times I, I went into Haiti, like for maybe the first couple months, I find my, I found myself as soon as we would land and I would get out of the airplane and, and greet the, our airport workers and those that we came in contact with. In my mind, I would switch to speaking Swahili <laughs> to them and they would of course look at me like what do you we have no idea what you're saying and then I would remember oh yeah I'm not in Africa this is this is Haiti and they speak Creole and French and ironically enough over my 13 and a half years with with MFI I never really learned uh, Creole or or French and uh, just wasn't required and wasn't wasn't needed um, but uh, I always thought that was a, a little bit of an interesting factoid for me. But, you know, flying the DC-3, again, was um, was an amazing experience. I don't know of any pilot out there that wouldn't just love to have the opportunity to, to fly the airplane. And I remember in the interview process at MFI, they, it was very common for them to have 
applicants apply just for the opportunity to fly the airplane. So it wasn't about the mission. It wasn't about what they were trying to accomplish. But it was about just flying the airplane. And so they were they were pretty pretty strict, if you will, on commitment. You know, I remember when I interviewed, they wanted at least a five-year commitment to the organization. And um, I held very, very true to that and very serious to that. And of course, you know, we stayed almost uh, like 13 and a half years. But f uh, from a pilot perspective, flying the DC-3s were, was, was amazing. I shared when when Dick was on our podcast. I remember the my very first takeoff and landings in the a piston power DC three was was with him, and I didn't have a lot of tailwheel time, and you know some of those lessons he taught me about controlling the importance of rudder control, and the importance of understanding the weight and the center of gravity of of a tailwheel airplane. And one of my first takeoffs, we were we were empty, and the airplane is just so powerful. As soon as I went to full power, the tail just immediately came up. And of course, there's no no real airspeed over the rudder, so there's no there was no rudder effectiveness at that point. We had a little bit of a crosswind, and the airplane just immediately weather vaned right into the wind instead of angling you know, being aimed straight down the runway. And so <laughs> the airplane began to roll, of course, being empty with enough power. Uh, Dick took control of the airplane and just pulled it off so we wouldn't go into the trees. <laughs> and and uh, that was a very, very valuable lesson. You know, um, learning how to, what's called, just fly the tail. If you think about flying the airplane and, and the wings being the, the major the major factor, but on a tailwheel airplane, it's actually the elevator in the tail. It's it's flying it, so one, like on landing, you don't want to slam the tail down, and on takeoff, you don't want the tail to come up too early. You want to keep that tailwheel on the ground because it's all you have for directional control until airspeed is sufficient to generate um, rudder effectiveness. And uh, so that was a, a lesson I learned very, very early on. So, you know, flying the DC-3s brought, brought uh, new challenges. Of course, introduction into turbine aircraft, not only from a pilot perspective, but also from a mechanic perspective, learning how to, to service and change fuel nozzles, doing hot section inspections, um, you know, learning how to adjust the beta rings and in reverse, and just so so many things. Uh, inspections on the, like I said, on the hot section, and uh, inspecting uh, turbine blades for nicks, gouges, damage, wear, things like that. And uh, so it was very very rewarding to learn those skills. But like I said, to operate turbine powered aircraft and uh, and grow as an aviator uh, very grateful for that opportunity uh, also had the opportunity through that to the job in flying i said you know all of our flights were ifr and probably one of the most stressful uh, aspects of it for for me was flying especially in the summertime across the caribbean to haiti and dealing with thunderstorms in an airplane that wasn't capable of outclimbing the thunderstorms. However, the airplane is like a tank. It was probably the most overbuilt, extremely strong airplane. And we've told stories before of, you know, uh, penetrating lines of thunderstorms and trying to pick our way through uh, with, with weather radar that was somewhat effective until the nose of the airplane got wet and then it would begin to attenuate and just paint everything red and then you're just you're just blind to what's really out there you have you really have no idea and then you just begin to look for the light spots <laughs> in the in the clouds and I've I've shared the analogies before about searching you know and looking for the light and and how um, the spiritual pair parallels to you know Jesus being the light of the world and being our savior 
and how much that that analogy works as a pilot as well as when the weather's bad if you can aim for the light spots and aim for the light that's where the better weather is and that's where things are going to get better but that position that that uh, experience over those 13 and a half years uh, taught me a lot about um, weather avoidance uh, weather interpretation uh, turbulence and and um, you know, how to operate safely in those environments and sometimes the safest thing to do is just stay on the ground um, there were several times i would just tell my passengers not not today we're just uh or just not right now we're going to just wait we're going to wait a couple hours we're going to wait for this um, system to to dissipate or to move or we're going to just take a different route and go um, the long way around and put on extra fuel and and deviate around large areas of weather you know those were all skills that that i learned and of course the the underlying predominant aspect of all of that is just aviation safety just really wanting to um, to be safe and not not bend an airplane and not not hurt any hurt anybody and so we did that for, like I said, 13 and a half years and have just tons of stories, tons of experiences. And, um, and you know, you've, you've heard some of those if you listen to the interview with Kenny and the interview with Dick and uh, just telling a lot of DC3 stories. And so that was a very special time in my life. That was a good, good um, 13 and a half years. And then towards the end of that, um, you know, again, Lee and I be, kind of began to sense that maybe God was um, was closing a door and and going to be moving us again. And so, again, we began to, to, to pray and really just seek what we should do. Our boys were getting older. College was, was approaching. And, you know, we're like, you know, um, what, are, what are we going to do? you know where would we where would we go what what is next and through a mutual friend um the door really opened for us to transition into the airlines and so in may of 2017 uh, through the help of of a friend i uh i applied and was hired by republic airways public airlines which is a a regional airline it is um partially owned by United Airlines, American Airlines, and Delta. It's kind of a, a, a weird business model, weird story. But the uh, airline is a, is, a, is a regional carrier for, for those three, for Delta, American, and United. And with, um, at that time, uh, several bases, crew bases all over the, over the, predominantly the eastern part of the country. And so I applied with them and went off to, Indoc indoctrination training and systems and aircraft training in um, Indiana in Indianapolis for a few weeks and then down into St. Louis for simulator training for about six weeks and received my uh, type rating in the Ember Air regional jet ERJ 170 slash 175 and um, Went to work for Republic. I was based in Philadelphia for about six months, and then Newark, New Jersey for a year, and then Miami for about two months before I uh, then got hired on at Frontier Airlines, where I've been ever since, as a and based in Orlando. So the transition for me into the airlines was uh, was quite difficult. You know, coming from Airplanes with no automation, um, no glass cockpits, as they say, with the modern avionics and displays. Um, flying airplanes that, you know, it's commonly referred to as just steam gauges because they're old, they're analog, and um, the traditional, what they call six-pack of instruments. And um, that's all I knew. That's, that's what we had in the DC-3s, of course, airplanes that were built in the the early 1940s with the exception of having a gps and uh two moving mac gps's garmin 530 and a garmin 430 that was the extent of my 
you know, glass modern navigation experience. And so transitioning out of an airplane that was built in 1942 and 43 into these super modern, brand new, um, highly sophisticated, computer monitored um, jets was a huge learning curve and it was somewhat overwhelming. It was it was frustrating to get into this airplane in the simulator at the time and truly feeling like I had no idea how to fly, having no idea what to do or how to read and interpret the instruments, the displays, because the displays were different than what I was used to. Um, for like the attitude indicator on modern jets, they use what's called sky pointers, which actually turn in the opposite direction of a traditional attitude indicator. And so that was confusing to me. I would turn and it would go to the opposite direction and I would just get so confused and it just really took me a while to learn and to um, adapt to modern jet aircraft avionics and displays and so that was a big a big um, a big challenge for me but through much much prayer from from uh, Leah and my family and friends and myself it made it through and um and worked for Republic for just under two years and then started with, with Frontier. And it's been a wonderful experience. Um, it's been very, again, challenging, again, learning a whole new world of aviation, a whole new um, system, if you, if you will, because commercial airlines is so regulated and structured it's so different than than private um, or corporate if you will um, aviation and so dealing with in a, a, a multi-crew uh, environment with with flight attendants and pilots that communication those relationship interactions dealing with um, dispatch dealing with maintenance control and almost uh, in a way feeling a little separated from what's going on in a in a system-wide um, aspect which is very foreign from being in in missions where we wore many hats we we had to do everything we were the pilots we were the mechanics we were the flight attendants the baggage handlers the the dispatchers we f filed all our own flight plans. We checked our own weather. We had to do everything. Uh, prepared all of our own manifests and uh, general declarations for customs and immigration. We had to do all of those things. And now stepping into the airlines to where all we do is just show up and fly the airplane. There's people whose job is to take care of all those other things. And, and probably one of the strangest or hardest uh, transitions for me was you know when flying the DC-3s or in Africa um, if the airplane malfunctioned or broke down well we were the mechanics and so you know in essence and literally we would take off our white pilot uniforms and put on our maintenance uniforms and we'd fix the airplane and we would troubleshoot and we would we would do what needed to be done to continue the mission and get the airplane back to base. Well, in the airlines, you don't do that. And so, you know, troubleshooting is picking up the telephone and calling maintenance and telling them, hey, this is what the airplane's saying is wrong. And they'll say, okay, and they'll send somebody to come fix it. And so that's been a little foreign to me. That's been a little bit of an adjustment, but it's it's been interesting. But the aviation world is so dynamic it's so vast it's so different depending on the type of flying that you're doing and uh it's it's a pretty pretty amazing world out there um as i kind of continue on with with this episode I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time sharing some thoughts I've had about safety and you know in the beginning of this I talked about how we 
were always um, very important to to calculate performance, calculate takeoff distances, landing differences, um, you know, terrain clearance, always monitoring what the airplane can do, is it how it's performing, and building in safety margins and things like that. And it made me think about what does safety mean for a Christian? What in in the in the world of being followers of Jesus Christ, what does safety really mean? And before I get into that, I wanted to share um, a segue into a a new system that Airbus has come out with in the last uh, little bit, and that we're we're getting on our airplanes, and it kind of dovetails into this whole aspect of of safety. And it's called Row Rops, R-O-W, and then R-O-P-S. And it's, run, it's Runway Overrun Prevention Systems. And, and, um, and Runway Overrun Warning Systems. And it's, it's a new system that they put in the airplane that's going to detect how much runway is remaining when you're on your approach. And it'll actually tell you if you're going to be able to land or if you're going to run off the end of the runway. And so it's runway overrun warning and run, runway overrun protection, which is amazing technology. It's amazing that it's to do this, that this, this system is constantly monitoring what the airplane is doing during the approach phase. And, and, um, uh, the NTSB and others have noticed over the last several years that 22% of aircraft accidents, um, the contributors to runway excursions and, and landing accidents or incidents are because of not calculating the amount of runway remaining. And 50% of undesired states that touch down are, are cause of that. So we talk a lot about stabilized approaches. Um, you know, again, I was talking about in those early days of, of learning how to operate on very short airstrips. Well, one of the most critical phases or lessons learned in that is the importance of a stabilized approach. <clears throat> to have criteria that you're measuring to say, all right, this airplane is configured. We're at our, our appropriate configuration with landing gear and flaps and and um, if it's in a piston-powered airplane, um, you know, mixtures and um, the propeller settings and, you know, the airplane, everything is configured. And on the modern jet, it's that, you know, the gear is down, the flaps and slats are in the landing configuration, we're at our approach speed, we're on glide path, we're on our vertical navigation and our lateral navigation, we're on course within prescribed um, parameters but the airplane is stable and a stable approach is the number one criteria to ensuring a a safe landing and what people have have learned people who study about these accidents have determined that 50 percent of accidents that happen during landing occur because the aircraft was not in a stable configuration and it resulted in a bounce landing it resulted in a long flare it resulted in you know landing long on the runway and then not having sufficient uh, braking to stop before the end of the runway it was from not factoring in uh, weather conditions whether the runway was wet or dry whether it's uh, clean, whether it has uh, you know snow or ice or things like that, and so you know Airbus has come up with these new warning systems that basically are taking a snapshot and calculating those those uh, those parameters. You know, again, things as as uh, aircraft position, aircraft engine type, the aircraft weight, the ground speed, outside air temperature. Slat flat configurations and um, airspeed, wind, center of gravity, all these things that play a very, very important role 
in the configuration of the airplane. And so, and so the airplane now, if you're in a position where you're about to touch down and the airplane is saying, hey, this isn't going to work too well, now it gives these, audi these uh, audible warnings such as runway too short or it'll say, you know, insufficient runway, runway too short, go around. And, and all of this is to enhance safety. And, you know, it'll say either go around or introduce maximum braking with maximum reverse. It'll give some input, input because it's calculated what the airplane is doing, which is just another level of safety to provide the pilots to make a, a, a wise decision. And, and these things are great from, from an aviation standpoint. You know, we have so many things in the airplane that, that create redundancy and safety, like, uh, you know, terrain awareness and terrain warning systems that, that um, you know, if you're going to fly into the side of a, a mountain, it'll say, pull up, pull up. And, you know, everybody's heard, heard those uh, in movies and things like that, you know, so you're going to pull up and perform some sort of memory item on how to respond to that emergency. Or, um, you know, we have traffic collision avoidance systems that if another airplane gets, gets too close, the airplane will provide some sort of mitigation uh, and response to avoid that other airplane. And so, you know, the manufacturers and engineers and, and, um, researchers are putting all these things into these airplanes to make them safer and to um, to make people more comfortable in flying and to provide more input for pilots to make wise and smart decisions all for all to enhance aviation safety and that's why you know to this day we know that that flying is the absolute safest mode of of transportation we've seen that over and over and over and it's incredible technology, and it's in, it's 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 amazing to fly airplanes that have that ability because we certainly didn't have that in the DC-3 or any of the single-engine airplanes I flew in Africa. And so again, it's it's just really cool from a pilot perspective to to see these uh, this technology and to fly airplanes that that um, have that ability. But when I started to think about aviation safety and correlating it to the life of a follower of Christ. Um, I kind of got asking myself the question, well, is following Jesus really safe? Um, for those that, that know me well, know that my, one of my, my absolute favorite, and some of you may, may laugh at this, but my probably absolute favorite books, besides the Bible, the favorite books in all the world are a children's book series by C.S. Lewis called The Chronicles of Narnia. I absolutely love those books, and I actually have them on dramatized audio from Focus on the Family uh, Radio Theater. And, and I can't tell you how many times when I'm driving in the car I think you know what I want to listen to a to a Narnia, and I'll I'll uh, I'll listen to one of the seven uh, books, and in, in that series, C.S. Lewis uses a a lion by the name of Aslan as a representation of of Jesus in the fictional fantasy world of Narnia, and and Aslan is presented as a as a wild huge extremely powerful lion which we all know from you know seeing lions in, in the wild and experiencing them uh firsthand in in africa when we lived there that you know lions are incredibly powerful and they're called king of uh, you know king of the forest for for a reason and um king of the jungle and of course, scripture refers to to Jesus as as the lion and also the lamb. But in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is oftentimes described as being a wild lion and as being not safe. And in one particular instance, Aslan having an interaction with a young girl, and she he asked her to come to him, and but she's scared, 
which would make sense because she's looking at a huge wild lion and she says but is it safe and he says no and she says well are you going to eat me and he says i have eaten kings i've eaten queens i've eaten realms i've eaten kingdoms universes because he's so powerful and as I got thinking about this, I came across an article um, by John Piper through his uh, desiringgod.org. And it's actually excerpts from a book that is, titled, that is titled Risk is Right. Better to lose your life than to waste it. And saying that safety is a myth. And what do you mean by that? And what he says is, well, both the Bible and experience teach us that safety is a myth. You can't put enough padlocks on your door and enough bars on your window to keep a heart attack from happening. There is no guarantee that anybody is going to live another breath. In terms of absolute security, all the efforts that we make to keep ourselves safe are ultimately an illusion. And that flies in the face of everything we try to do in aviation our simulator training our our computer-based training that we do our procedures our standard operating procedures our flight operations manuals our our safety briefings you know, this whole huge multi-million dollar industry of aviation safety um you know but essentially john piper saying it's all an illusion But then he concludes it like this. He says, the illusion of safety. And this is where it really kind of brings it into perspective for me. He says, our life is in God's hands. It says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. From James chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. So, so there is no safety in the car to get you there. There is no safety in the building while you are there. There are no guarantees that you are going to live. And that is what experience teaches us. Safety is an illusion in terms of its guarantee. And then he goes on to say that the Bible even promises peril. And, you know, Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Acts 14.22. And Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, it is not strange. It is normal to suffer in this world. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He goes on to say, Count it all joy when you are persecuted because you're joining in your Savior's um, trials. So the New Testament is just replete with the truth that you will not be safe. We are going to suffer. And yet Jesus Jesus in the gospel says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And he says, if you want to follow me, realize that even the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Over the last couple of weeks, Lee and I have been watching uh, The Chosen uh, series on um, Angel Studios. And if you haven't watched those, I strongly urge, urge you to. They're, they're just fantastic. Uh, there's two seasons out. Season three is, is coming soon. They're just absolutely amazing. But as I was watching the, those episodes, that verse about Jesus saying, you know, even the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head, they really illustrate that so well in, in The Chosen. And um, to realize that following Jesus does come at a price. You know, we see that in the lives of the apostles. Again, check out the chosen. Um, we see that in people who who followed Jesus. But he said, he said, you know, take upon my yoke, for it is light. And uh, 
and you know the the apostles they're following following Christ, it for many of them it did cost them their life as martyrs and we see all through history the the martyred church of people who have given their lives to follow Jesus Christ and so the the illusion of safety is holding a Christian back from taking risk is what um, excuse me, is what um, John Piper says. Um, risk is a peculiar thing. In order for there to be risk, there must be ignorance. So God can't risk, I hear people say. God took a big risk in creating humankind. Or God took a big risk in sending his son into the world. Absolutely, he did not. He knew exactly what would happen to his son. He knew exactly what would fall because he was planning redemption long before he created the world. The Bible is clear on that. God can never, nor did he ever, take a risk because God demands ignorance. That is, if you know that you are going to be shot when you stand in front of your wife, you don't risk being shot. You sacrifice yourself, period. That is not a risk. That is a sacrifice. And so you give your life for her. That is what Jesus did. Most of us live every day not all sure what will happen to us. If we write a letter to our son or daughter or try to witness to them, we don't know if it will backfire. When we try to witness to somebody at work, we don't know whether they will criticize us or whether we will lose our job. When a person goes into a mission field, he does not know whether he is going to be arrested. But there are just a thousand things that we don't know what might happen to us. John Piper's point in writing this book is, he says, is we should choose to risk. We should embrace risk, not minimize it. And we decide whether a risk is right by looking at the greatness of the outcome that we hope for. Personally, he says, I think taking life-threatening risks for sheer pleasure is wrong. I wouldn't skydive or hang glide for just for sheer pleasure. Why? Because if there is one simple malfunction, you are dead. And for what reason? Fun? To me, that's a bad idea. However, I would support skydiving and hang gliding in order to accomplish something great, some great sacrificial goal for another person. Everybody knows that driving a car down the road is taking a risk, but we still do it because getting somewhere is valuable and the risk is small. The same applies with getting on an airplane. You risk your life getting on an airplane and I think getting on an airplane just for fun would probably be foolish, but getting on an airplane to go somewhere in a certain amount of time with minimum risk and high payoff would be right. Um, but he concludes by saying, but I think there is a way to take risk as an arrogant glory seeker. So I'm not saying that only believers take risk. I am saying the only way to rightly take a risk that honors Christ is to say, I love you, I trust you, I believe you are in control, and only you can provide the strength to do this, and only you will govern the outcome. I am willing to walk into this risk for kingdom purposes and for your glory because I am trusting you. The reason I can trust you is because you died for me and you rose for me. The gospel is underneath my readiness to risk my faith. And so we take risks every day. And, and as I think about the risks that we take, you know, in, in aviation, because yes, we're, we're putting ourselves into a metal tube and going to fly through the air at 500 miles an hour, which, which is an incredible feat. It's, it's, it still amazes me every time I get, I get to fly. And to be in, in the sky and looking at God's creation. But at the same time, I do realize that at, a, at, the, at any given moment, something could happen. That any given moment, the forces acting on that airplane could come out of balance and something catastrophic could happen. But I think what John Piper is, is telling us in this, in this article is that one we need to live our lives not in fear but we need to live our lives trusting god we need to live our lives knowing that god knows what's best for us 
And scripture says he knows the number of hairs on our head and in the same way he knows the beginning and end of our lives. He has that all worked out. He has that all predestined and he knows. And you know, oftentimes you say, well, when your time comes, your time comes. Well, yeah, there's truth to that because God is perfect and his ways are perfect and his will is perfect. And none of us will know when that day will come. We don't know if Jesus will come back and rapture his church before we pass away or if we'll fall asleep and be the first to rise when he does. But the first thing is to know where you're going to be. So I strongly urge you that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that you make that decision today. That you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and realize that He is Lord of all. The scripture says that in that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you can do it on this side of eternity where it's your choice, or you can do it on the other side when it's too late. So I strongly urge you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to seek Him and to ask Him. Romans 10 said, if you just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If you do know Jesus, if you know that He is your Lord and Savior, then be willing to take a risk for Him. What's He asking you to do? What's He calling you to do? Live your life each day in ways that, that stretch your faith and bring honor and glory to Christ. Because doing that is, as John Piper says, it's a way of saying, I love you and I trust you. Don't let fear prevent you from doing what Jesus has asked you to do. And I'm speaking to myself as much as I am, as I am you. And, you know, again, back to aviation, we, we have all of these systems and structures and mechanisms around us, both in the airplane and, and just in policy to keep us safe, to keep us as safe as, po as we possibly can from a human standpoint. But there's so much that we cannot account for. You know, the, 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 the world often calls it the, you know, those, the acts of God. We can, we can make wise decisions about, you know, let's not fly through that thunderstorm because thunderstorms can rip airplanes apart. So let's not do that. And let's not land on this runway that is completely covered with ice and snow that hasn't been cleaned off. Because the airplane is telling us that we're not going to be able to stop. And so let's go somewhere else. Or, you know, the weather's just too bad. Let's just not go fly today. You know, God gives us wisdom and he gives us discernment and he gives us the ability to reason and to problem solve and to think critically and make wise decisions. And so that is a gift from God and we need to use that. And we need to not make make a irresponsible, um, stupid risk and in, in decisions because, you know, life is too precious um, to take unnecessary risk. But what it, what it comes down to is, is we need to realize that our life, as John Piper started off this article, our life is in God's hands. And God's got us. And so let's trust Him. Let's follow Him. And let's give our lives to Him. And let's tell Him and show Him how much we love Him and how much we trust Him through our actions and through our deeds. So I hope this has been an encouraging uh, episode for you. I want to thank you for listening. Again, if, uh, if you have questions, comments, uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. You definitely shoot us an email at plaintruthpods at gmail.com. If, if you would like to be a guest, reach out to me. If you know somebody who you think would be a great guest, have them reach out uh, to me. I'd love to hear from them. And again, I hope you have a blessed day. And until next week, um, be blessed and take care.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Plain Truth Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to come back next week for more discussions and stories about God's Word and the amazing world of aviation. Until next time, set your course straight and stay on track. Thank you.